what happens usually for people to understand their core values is that something bad happened to encroach upon said value. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast. My name is Martin McGovern, the founder and lead coach of Career Therapy. And today we have another episode of the podcast for you and another addition to this series, Talks with Therapists. Today we are joined by Garrett Shotwell, who is the owner and who is an owner and therapist at Illumination Psychotherapy. And I'm really excited to have him here to dive into some really cool topics from work-related trauma to gaslighting, something that folks uh, definitely struggle with in the, in the workforce and, and all sorts of other topics that we're dealing with in relation to COVID and everything happening in the world. So Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Me as well. Um, I always like to start these off with uh, the tell me about yourself infamous interview question. So let, uh, let folks know a little bit about your background and how you got into the field of psychotherapy. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's, that's a long question. But the like elevator-ish, um, I guess, response would be um, about myself. I am a licensed clinical social worker um, based here in the Chicagoland area. I have an office in Lincolnwood. Pre-COVID, I was seeing people in home and um, online, which was kind of my niche. Um, and then actually slowly as COVID happened, I've kind of turned into more like just all the other therapists who just see people virtually um, as I've eliminated the at-home portion. But um, so I specialize in anxiety, depression um, through the lens of trauma. And um, I'm really interested right now in like, um, I got certified to teach yoga. Um, so I'm really interested in the kind of movement aspect and the meditative work and how that can help with anxiety and trauma. So that's that's kind of the framework through which I practice therapy from. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to dig into these topics with you and learn a little bit more about, you know, even what it's like uh, on your side in, in dealing with what's happening in the world, namely this first piece that you just mentioned, which your practice has gone from seeing people in person to seeing people online. Uh, I've always been a virtual career coach with some in-person stuff, but most of it online. So it was kind of a, a natural progression. But uh, for you, how has that change been? And what would you say is like the key difference between online and offline therapy? Ooh, um... That, I don't, that kind of excites me. So um, like you, so like I, uh, I guess for a large part of my social work career, like I worked at a large kind of tech company that intersected with mental health. So the um, kind of meeting people where they are, which is a term we hear a lot in social work, but it, it took on a new meaning for me. So when I started my practice, actually a year ago yesterday. Congrats. Um, so like, a, thank you. We had our like, um, first birthday. So kind of starting off virtually was a no-brainer for me that it would attract kind of more clientele and people who typically wouldn't or couldn't take the time to go in office. That said, I do think it can be a bit of a different experience. So like since COVID, I, uh, or a little bit before COVID actually, I, I got an office space because um, it does kind of create a whole new level of like safety and intimacy. Um, 
especially for kids, I think it's it can be easier to see kiddos or younger people in person. Um, but so like being online and virtually is was fine for me because I was kind of already doing it. Um, and I'm happy now that one of the benefits I think is that like third party payers, so like the insurance companies have caught up to see like the need and are covering that. So it's making it more accessible to people. But I do think there's a difference, like um, not to get too- in, Feel into free to field. get into the weeds. Okay. <laughs> so like we have mirror neurons in our brain that like go off whenever we're like in person with people. And um, I think that can be achieved virtually too. I, but I do think there's like, some like physiological responses that we have when we're like physically able to see a person and just be with them. Um, again, I, so I think part of the trouble that a lot of people had shifting from in office to virtual is that they didn't consent to it. Um, and so that's not the experience they wanted, but now they're forced to have it. So it like inherently is something to process and work through but for people who kind of start off virtually um in some ways they're like uh, virtually no difference <laughs> um so like they like uh right sorry dad joke but like they um like are prepared for it so um yeah it, it has its pluses and and minuses uh, but also like overall i think it's um helping a lot more people get get help yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, with it, it, I've, I've heard a lot of interesting things happening with like virtual interviews as well. Um, we do lose those mirror neurons, as you mentioned. I'd love to go deeper into that idea. Um, but also it's making interviewing much more accessible to people who have, you know, physical disabilities or anything like that. And so uh, there are always pros and cons to everything, right? But <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty interesting to see how these things change um, and 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 evolve. So when it comes to these like mirror neurons, um, I'm I'm just curious to know like more about how that plays a factor in your practice and and uh, if you could elaborate a little bit more on that idea. I guess it would, and I'm no neurologist or like even a psychologist, like my training in social work, like I chose to take like a more clinical path, um, which led me to psychotherapy. Um, and I'm just inherently interested in the brain specifically as it relates to anxiety and trauma. But neuro, like mirror neurons kind of are part of empathy. So like we have to have these things, like we have to see them and they reflect in ourselves and other people. And um, so how it impacts the I think it's acknowledging that like it can be a different connection. Um, it's just really kind of different with everyone. I find it a little more draining for myself as like the therapist because I feel like, um, and I don't necessarily know the science behind it, but I feel like I'm trying to make a connection and cognitively I know that that's happening and perhaps I can override like the the mirror neurons that are trying to connect, but it's with a screen essentially mm. so it's really kind of all about how i approach it it's like am i looking at a screen or am i looking at a person um but you know when you're in person you you, you don't have to make that decision it's like you're you're looking at a person and so i find myself sometimes if i which as a result i've altered like how many people i see in a day because it, it does change my exhaustion level when i stare at a screen versus a person not that in therapy is you're just staring at someone. Yeah. But, um, 
but what, yeah, stare that, therapy that, isn't a thing yet. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> who blinks first? Um, so who knows? Who knows? Like um, the science behind it. I think we'll we'll learn more as we go. And but that might not necessarily be a problem from the client's perspective. Like it's unlikely that clients do that for eight hours. But that might come up for people like who have shifted to working from home, where it's like, why am I so exhausted now that I'm staring at a computer? all day versus like being in in-person meetings well it's like because it's harder to connect via via computer not that it's impossible i just think it's an extra layer to be acknowledged absolutely i think you're 100 percent on point as i've been doing virtual coaching i've had to start limiting the number of hours per day just because i can tell like you know that burnout adds up over time over years over over conversations and and meanwhile you know, when I'm in person with someone, I can talk for four hours and it just goes by in a minute. But when you're staring at a clock and talking to someone it and maybe looking at a notepad and maybe like something's flashing and beeping and catching your attention, it definitely creates a lot of extra noise to sift through. And I think that's interesting from the point of view of, of workers. Like you said, you know, everyone was kind of pushed into this work from home space and, you know, whether or not they wanted it, um, and now I was actually on a call with a few folks this morning and we had to do a whole breakdown of their just daily schedule because uh, they hadn't really thought about it. It just sort of whatever schedule they fell into happened to be the thing. And now they're trying to figure out how to you know, manage their energy levels because they used to be able to sit with a bunch of other people and talk for 15 minutes between like classes or something. And now they don't have that. And I think it's a, uh, I think it's real. And, and like, you know, there's probably a big difference between me sprinting down the street to get to a therapy session and having that blood flow <laughs> and me just like kind of switching from one call into a therapy call, which uh, I'll actually be doing later today. Um, but yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. So as we kind of dig into the work you do, what do you, what are the most common things that you're seeing um, either in your like work in the, over the years or in if, if there's something interesting that's changed recently, what's the most common stuff that you see on a regular basis? The most glaring thing I've noticed since March is anxiety, um, which is this, uh, a lot of people have anxiety. It's, it's the part of our brain that's passed down from cavemen. Like it's the amygdala that fires the fight, flight, or freeze. And so like, if you have anxiety, it's likely your parents have it too. Um, so people walk around, like anxiety in a lot of ways protects us and keeps us safe because it motivates us from to remove ourselves from danger. Um, but it's activated usually from like an external event. Um, and so I think COVID did that. And pretty much all of my caseload, either people are coming in for anxiety or or symptoms of anxiety, or they've kind of managed it well, and it's been activated in really peculiar ways that um, people just like weren't equipped to manage. What sort of things? What, what sort of ways is it being uh, triggered? Work from home is one of them. Like work in general is a huge piece. Um, losing that, um, so all the things that 
keep us whole and well in general that we take for granted. So like you're talking about like the, the 15 minute between classes or whatever. So like that social exchange or camaraderie or connection is really important. But whenever that's suddenly taken away again without consent, then those like 15 minute things that seemingly aren't that important or you wouldn't necessarily identify as like a huge part of your well-being, those things start to add up and um, it just becomes too much. So those small things in combination with like the actual big things, which is like you can't see your family, you can't travel, you can't go to the gym, um, and can't is strong, like it's different now. Um, it's not that you can't do those things, it's that you have to look at them differently. And so mm -hmm. um, people were kind of forced to adhere to things that they didn't consent to. Mm -hmm. And that brings up an interesting point of what do you replace these missing pieces with as well, right? Um, a lot of times that, you know, 10 minute conversation with your cubicle partner, which might've been fun um, or annoying or interesting or whatever, it might've just been something, uh, just gets replaced with Instagram or TikTok or something along those lines. How have you seen that um, social media side of things, you know, considering that the social dilemma did just come out this past week on Netflix. <laughs> How have you seen Which I that? I deleted Facebook like a me like halfway through. I was like, I'm deleting it. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Sure. Like I, I kept it for the longest time for my business um, because, you know, it's like you don't question it. Um, and so then you like I realized I'm like, OK, I'm going to break down like how much if if I'm doing it for my business, that means in my brain, like I was doing it for marketing. And so then it's like, how much return have I seen from Facebook? Like how, like has any of this turned into dollars mm -hmm. and zero, zero dollars that I know of have come from it. So I was like, delete it. Yes. It's gone. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I deleted Facebook a while ago. Um, I was reading one of the guys in that documentary, the guy with the long hair. Um, he, I watched one of his videos like two years ago and I was like, Oh, there, there goes Facebook. And, but I finally let go of Instagram. I think that was the big one for me. Cause I was like, uh, well, and then LinkedIn launched stories today. So I'm like, well, I really don't need Instagram. I don't, I, I can just do one platform instead of multiple. And that was a pretty wonderful moment, but yeah, it is fascinating how, um, that, that, that approach has kind of revealed or that show has kind of revealed a lot of the, I don't know, they hit on some pretty scary statistics, right? Of like increases in depression, increases in suicide, increases in like plastic surgery to look like your Snapchat filters. Like there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world. And I don't know, I'm talking to a therapist. Maybe I shouldn't be throwing that word around so loosely, but um, I'm curious how you've sort of seen, you know, all of the let's just call it all of the digital noise affecting people um, in their work. Is it, are you seeing people having harder times in their jobs? Maybe it's performance, maybe it's feelings of imposter syndrome, maybe it's something else along those lines. Um, are you seeing, you know, work-related issues arising either from these kinds of technology overwhelms or, or from other things uh, that might be Im impacting them? Like if one system's weak, all systems are weak. 
And so um, work is especially interesting for people because there's such a power dynamic there um, and it has shifted so much. But I, I definitely see people who have um, a less than balanced for themselves approach to consumption as it relates to social media or news right now. Um, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. So it's really important for people to be involved and in, in, in touch. Um, but there's a fine line of like staying up to date with what's relevant versus being bombarded with fodder and things that um, are really unhealthy and harmful. And so a lot of really well-balanced people right now are unable to manage what's healthy for them um kind of using it behaviorally like checking social media all the time whether it's the news um youtube and it's really just a state of mindlessness um so it goes from a point of being mindful and then something happens and then it's mindless and so you kind of get stuck in the social dilemma i think it was like regardless of use so like anything over 30 minutes increases your rate of depression, anxiety, and um, panic. And so to like, for what I said, when, why I took it away, it's like, oh, well, I'm using it for business. Um, well, that doesn't matter. If it's over 30 minutes, then it's gonna increase my chances of those things as well. Um, so yeah, it's really hard for people to balance those two. And, it, and, it, and again, I think that system weakens other systems. Um, maybe it steals time from you and your kind of home life system, which then weakens all the other ones. And of course, it's going to spread into work. Yeah, especially because like, you know, when we're thinking about it, we, there's this sense of imposter syndrome that almost everyone that I work with has, no matter where they are in their career. And a lot of times, you know, you'd think, well, maybe I can just take some time to work on myself or work on my skills and overcome that. But then there's the risk, the, the, oh, I don't have time thing that happens. And then, you know, in that documentary, they talk about the, the, the amount of time spent. And I like your use of the word mindlessness because I feel like, I feel like sometimes in our careers, we don't feel like we have power. We don't feel like we're making decisions for ourselves and being really actively in control of our destinies. And, um, you know, you also talked about this power dynamic that exists. I'd love to dig into this idea a little bit more of, of power and how power plays a part in our careers. Um, what, what kind of things have you seen or, or topics are you most interested in when it comes to power dynamics at work? people's relationship to themselves or work. So um, when you say imposter syndrome, I think I kind of intentionally didn't touch it when you first said those okay. words, because they kind of they, they kind of live, that's a relational issue. Um, I think you can work with someone to redefine that. So maybe instead of I'm not good enough, or kind of instead of addressing it that way, it would be like, or the alternative is you constantly push yourself to grow so you feel uncomfortable um, so it's really working on like how you view yourself and what your relationship is to yourself and work same with um, power dynamics you know if you really break down the exchange of work you're selling your time for a price um, and so 
when you shift it that way, there's an inherent power dynamic shift to where like, oh, I'm in control. I have the goods that you want. And so you're offering me a price instead of just taking it. It's like, well, no, like these are my goods. Like they're worth a little bit more than that. Um, so it's really just working on changing the mindset and the relationship to that. I think culturally and um, for, I guess for a lot of reasons, it's really easy to get stuck in the, um, the opposite of like, no, I have the money and the power and you do what I say. Um, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. And that kind of brings us into, you know, the idea of, of burnout. Cause I feel like if we're, if we're feeling like we're doing things that other people are telling us to do, we lack that motivation and that energy that comes along with it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are around what it is that actually leads to burnout for so many folks. Um, you know, there's, there's a million ways we can approach it, but I'm curious, like when that comes up in, in your line of work, what, what do you see most often? Two things come to mind. One was, um, I mean, it, so going back to like the, the management work I've done where I've led a large team of clinicians who supervised volunteers who then worked with people who were in crisis. And, you know, the people that I managed, I burnout and compassion fatigue was a huge risk factor that we had to kind of always have our finger on the pulse of. And so what I found through that work, which this was like large scale stuff, um, like thousands of volunteers, like hundreds of thousands of um, users who utilized the service. And what I found was that it wasn't the, so the people that I managed, it wasn't the intense clinical work, which um, related to anything from self-harm to suicide. It was the organizational support and the alignment of values. And so having shifted into private practice, if I really want to get granular, I find that to be true with a lot of my clients too. It's not the actual work, whatever it is, whether it's like, you know, I'm a construction worker or I work in a grocery store or I'm an attorney. It's not the work that people are trained to do. It's the support or rather the lack of support um, or the inconsistent, confusing, i.e. gaslighting where it's like, um, no, these are our values. Here are all the behaviors that conflict with that. But then these kind of direct statements that are like, no, 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 that's, that's not true. Sorry, that was your experience, um, you know, type of situation. It's actually like um, a lot of the burnout could be mitigated from the organizational standpoint. Whereas I think oftentimes executives and upper management think it's the intense work that they do, if they even acknowledge it at all. Um, which, you know, I believe that people are inherently good and know what they need and don't need. And so they, they can handle their, and not always, some, some professions have higher risks than others. Um, but generally, if it comes from the top down, um, in terms of actually being a safe place to work, then a lot of that can be mitigated. And when it comes to this alignment, I think that that's really fascinating because it is, you know, we talk about values a lot and people talk about culture a lot. Like that seems to be the phrase that people use all the time. It's like, 
at the end of my interview, I'm going to ask a question about the company culture. It's like, what's your company culture? We go to happy hour every Friday. It's like, that's, is that really what we're talking about here? So when it comes to like values and aligning values, what sort of things should people be thinking about? What are their values? <laughs> yep. Those, so their own. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. Um, I think so often, so like, yeah, you can hear about a value of a, like, I'm using quote, like a value of a company. Um, who knows how that manifests within the organization. Um, but if you don't know your own core values, then how are you going to know if they align? Um, and so in a lot, I just think it's good to be a human and to know and to every six months or so, maybe like a quarterly evaluation of your own core values would not be such a bad thing. Um, because what happens usually for people to understand their core values is that something bad happened to encroach upon said value that you haven't identified. So you feel really badly and you feel hurt and you feel angry, um, but you don't know why. Maybe you project it onto just a certain behavior of a manager, a coworker, or an organization, which is true, like that happened and that person probably did something to you, but what did they do to you? They encroached upon X, Y, Z value. Um, so I think getting, getting to know yourself and know your core values is kind of the first step of seeing if you actually align with an organization's core values. For those who might be listening to this and just going, well, what are my core values, right? Well, do you have a few examples um, Maybe, you know, either hypothetical or, or an anonymous real example that you could point to of how you might have helped someone discover their values and, and what some of those might have looked like for them. Yeah, you can, I mean, you can always, if you want to start in the negative, you can always think of, uh, think of an example of something that happened where you can, it's not too closely to where you still get mad about it and your brain gets cluttered and your thing, emotions and thoughts get in the way, but something that like, you know, upset you, but you have some time and space from it. And you can think of like, okay, this situation happened and you can kind of back into it that way. Like this upset me. Why? Well, it intruded on my weekend. Why, why is that bothersome to me? It's just another day. It was only 20 minutes. Um, and you can break it down even further. We're like, well, it wasn't just 20 minutes. The call lasted 20 minutes, but it took up four hours of me, like just enraged in my mind. So then it's like four hours and 20 minutes. So then like, um, it could be that like a core value is that you have really healthy boundaries and that was disrespected or, um, you know, you prefer to, I don't know, family time's really important to you or it could just be whatever. Um, so you can kind of back into it that way. Um, another thing, another way to go about it would be like the opposite, which is, if you had to, and I actually did this exercise when creating my business where if, you know, there weren't any barriers, what would your ideal day look like? Why is that so? What's important to you? So one of mine was, you know, waking up kind of later than the typical work day. So I only see clients from noon to seven. So that way, like I have the morning time. I can work out, I can read, I can meditate. So it's like that alone time and that space is sacred for me. So that's one of my core values that I engage with every day. That's awesome. Yeah, you got me thinking about uh, 
last week I was on uh, a lot of customer service lines, uh, which, oh my, oh my, those customer service lines. And one in particular was uh, incredibly frustrating. We, I first tried to do it through the chat online because I figured that'd be faster. But after an hour plus of not getting through there, I called the line and on both things, on the chat at the same time as the phone, they kept saying, uh, we, are expect we are experiencing higher than normal call volumes. And I've heard that phrase on about five different companies that I've called. It's like their go-to phrase now, but it's every time. And I'm like, well, if it's every time, it's not higher than normal. It's the exact normal amount. And so it kind of triggered my, like, my, I guess my value of honesty or my value of like hating BS. I don't know. <laughs> like, or efficiency, like, or, or like your time is important. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't even think I would have worried as much about the time if every five minutes they weren't saying we value you. And we'll be like, I, what really made me lose it was they said, we'll be, your wait time is, te is estimated 10 minutes. And then 10 minutes later, they would say, your wait time is estimated 10 minutes. And they would say, are you still there? I go, yeah. Your wait time. I said, you've already said that. And I think it's that like, kind of going back to the gaslighting. I feel like I was getting gaslit by a, a chat bot. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? And my rage level went to a level that I have not been at in a while. So I think it's so cool that you, you know, break it out that way. I think it's, it's, it's interesting to find those moments of like, maybe I'm too close to it, like you said before, but um, that is, that does ring true to me. And so as we're looking at how values play out. And, you know, we kind of talked about gaslighting a little bit, um, but I'm not sure we fully sort of laid out what that looks like in the workplace. What, what would maybe an example of that look like for someone in case uh, someone out there is curious about, wait, am I being gaslit at work? What, what would they, what signs should they look for? I, I think the first thing to be aware of, which is so like, I'm sure people have heard this a hundred thousand times but like trust your gut so like if you start to feel like this isn't right no it is right like take note of it um maybe not the first time like i think to to be gaslit there has to be themes like most things like like collect data um so understand like what your reaction to things are let me think of a good example um i think a lot of times it's really unintentional and slow um so and to be clear, like we're talking about like the term gas lighting came it was from a movie. Do you know like a movie from the 50s or 60s? Um, I'm sure. Yeah. I don't know um, when the movie came out. <laughs> but um, so basically it was a domestic. It was the movie was about like domestic violence and abuse where um, I think the male husband character was slowly like turning down the light and and then um, the um, female lead, which was the wife, was, um, you know, he was telling her she was slowly going blind or something like that. But really, he was just turning down the light, but lying to her. So I think anything that falls in that category, and it's a really important, strong word to a lot of people. Um, but I think it's, it's a way for people to quickly be like, oh, this isn't right. Um, I'm kind of stuck in this cycle where there's tension, there's a negative incident. Um, then there's retribution, which if you think of like 
quarterly bonuses or yearly bonuses where it's like, here's a gift. Then we're kind of back in the honeymoon phase. And then actually, no, it's slowly starting to go back negatively. No, that's not true. Um, and then you're like, wait, it is true. Oh, I just got my bonus. Like maybe it's not true. And it it's really easy for that cycle to to, to play out. And unfortunately, I think a lot of managers unintentionally contribute to that, where if they're getting directives from higher level management, and if they're unable or it's unsafe for that manager to be clear of what's actually happening to the employee, to the employee, it can be easily perceived as like, well, this is, you're saying this is happening X, Y, Z, but it's actually not. Um, I realize I didn't give you an exact example. For well, I like, I like, like where you're going on. Mind. That's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm pushing too hard. But the, the idea here and what's standing out to me is this kind of cycle that folks can get in with their careers where um, they're really done and ready to quit, but then something happens that keeps them around and that can keep happening on a cycle. And this idea, I never thought about bonuses as like kind of being this sort of hooking you back into like almost a toxic relationship in a way. It's like, oh, well, I need that. I need to get to that date so that um, I'm, I'm secure enough to move on. But then as soon as you get past that date, something always comes up that like makes it hard to leave. And it, it kind of reminds me of that sort of movie version of, of a toxic relationship, right? Um, and I think that a lot of this stuff, you know, results in workplace traumas that maybe people don't even realize until years later when they're looking back on a career. What I find so often is that the things that happen throughout our career really, really impact our decision making and our ability to um, respond well to different situations. I'll see people get livid about, you know, an HR recruiter taking an extra day or two to get back to them because they probably had a work environment where their boss like never responded to anything. So they kind of get that taste of the old thing and it kind of ignites that whole flame again. Um, so I'm kind of curious, you know, in your work with trauma and things like that, what are some of the experiences or the things that you see folks go through and how do they typically find ways to cope with those traumas? It depends on where they are in terms of a realizing that they've experienced workplace trauma things get so normalized so easily and um slowly where like you know anytime money is involved where it's like actually going back to the social dilemma not to spoiler alert but like at the end where they're like they i believe and correct me if i'm wrong but like the the kind of main people that were being interviewed, it was like the intention wasn't for this, but this is the outcome and how it happened. Um, so I think some people can go along with things which slowly degrade their values. And then before they know it, they're kind of depleted because their values have been encroached upon for so long. So that it's like what grounds them to have the clear decision-making to get out it takes a lot of emotional energy and then especially like if you're talking about like the projection of like how you respond because you feel threatened because it reminds you of a former exchange or a, a 
coworker or boss or something, you know, you, I think what is it's on my website, but Viktor Frankl, um, it's one of my favorite books, but it's like between stimulus and response, there is space. And so oftentimes people in that space actually is where I believe that like core values live. Like you have something happens and you have time to respond and you can choose to respond within your core values. But when you, when you're, when you're in trauma or um, having an anxiety or panic response, you, you can't take a moment to respond in a way that is within your core values because you're in fight, flight, or freeze. And so unfortunately, whenever you combine that with work, um, it puts you at risk of being taken advantage of and not making proper decisions. It also, which I'm, there's tons of research on this and in another life, I, if I could go into like psychology and do like organizational work, I fully would. But, you know, it really behooves organizations to learn how they're inflicting trauma and how their employees, are they responding in a trauma response or a fight, flight, or freeze? Because that could cost them tons of money. So like it, it really makes the most sense both from an individual and organizational level, um, but it's, it's often not addressed. Or screened for. Yeah. So like, you know, I'm thinking of like hire, hiring some contractors. Of course, like you don't want your therapist to like <laughs> um, be in like a trauma response or anything. But it's like you, these things like need to be sensitively assessed for um, not to exclude people from but to like know how to work with people. Um, like if you're a manager and someone's constantly angry or um, like hot tempered or quick to respond kind of not from the most logical space. It's like, oh, well, what's going on? Like, how can we um, bring your nervous system down to a place of calmness? Maybe they don't feel safe. So maybe that's not an option for them. But it, I think it's really easy over time for people to slip into that. Absolutely. I think I see that all the time in coaching where I'll get on the phone with someone and they're all the way up here and that you know, they're like the resume and the thing and the blah and the interview. And I'm always just like, okay, wait, a, let's take 10 steps back from the resume because the way you're talking, I think we need to just do a, an emotional check in here. Um, so I love how, you, how you're breaking that down. Um, when it comes to how we respond, and I think, was this the book that you were referring to, Victor Frankel, yes. Man's Search for Meaning? Yes. Yeah, I go ahead. That you read <laughs> right next for to me. Starting the, it. Yeah. Um, awesome book. Definitely recommend folks to check it out. One of the things that I think is so fascinating when it comes to our psychology is our ability to respond differently or to choose our response, let's say. Uh, we don't necessarily choose the emotional reaction, but we choose the reaction to the reaction. Uh, if, if, um, if I'll let you kind of let me know where I might be going off the rails here. But uh, one of the things that I read earlier today, and I'm a huge fan of stoicism, is this idea, um, it's okay to be mad, just don't be angry. Like mad is a feeling, angry is an action. I think I'm skimming articles here, but uh, I'm curious what your thought is on the sort of initial emotional reaction versus the reaction to that emotional reaction. Because 
for the listeners who are going through the job search right now or trying to maybe get out of a, a toxic work environment, I think that there's a lot that is within our control that, that maybe we are not aware of. Curious your thoughts. Yeah, so the first, like choosing our response, I think is a privilege. Um, so going back to the like between stimulus and response, there's space. I think not everyone has the privilege to live in a safe space. And so um, actually your brain will take over and choose um, all with the intent of keeping you safe. And so for some people who don't have the privilege to have that space, will respond out of character, even if it seems like it's in character because they've done it for so long. Um, so that's when you get, get into people who, you know, have big gaps in their resume or um, don't work well with others or like need like a performance review. Um, but actually, like it might not be them at all. It's just that they haven't had the privilege to feel safe. And um, that's devastating. But this, uh, um, this I like how you put it, like the the reaction to the um, the, the reaction to the reaction, essentially. Um, and anger is interesting because I kind of see anger as like a roadmap to hurt. Um, you know, if anger comes up, I think we often resist it. Um, we resist a lot of emotions and feelings, which kind of add even more negative emotions on top of it. But if we're just looking at like the reaction or the, was that right? Like the reaction to the reaction? Yeah. And, you know, as we're talking this through, like, and I just looked up the quote, it was, uh, it's okay to get mad, just don't be angry. But we, and just so I make sure I quoted it correctly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm assuming there's very specific definitions of how they're, you know, what they mean by those words. Um, but it is, I, I like how you, where you're going with this, because it's like, there's the, um, let's just say the subconscious response, right? The first thing that happens without us intentionally deciding. And then there's the way that we respond to that reaction. Like if I, do I lash out? Do I get quiet? Do I run away? Do I confront all these different things? And then there's how we feel even after we do that thing, which is us judging our response to the response. And so it's almost like, I heard this great quote. It was like, we're the only animal that will suffer like a thousand times for one mistake. Um, yes. It's like, we're going <laughs> to, we have an emotional response, which leads to a physical response, which leads to a judgmental response, which leads to a existential crisis about how we <laughs> respond. So I think it's quite interesting how many layers we can kind of get into as we start analyzing these things. Yeah. So that like secondary um, emotional response, a reaction to your reaction, oftentimes may not be helpful. Um, a lot of people, I think, skip from the first straight to the second, like they behave in a way and then they feel badly about it or have shame or guilt. And um, to me, when that happens, or just when it happens within myself, um, that's me resisting my experience. So like maybe I did act out, out of character and sort of judge myself for that. Instead of judging myself, just being curious about it, be like, oh, why am I feeling this way? Um, so like practicing radical acceptance of what happened, even if that is disappointing, disappointment, 
for whatever reason, and we have to sit in that, and we don't like to sit in negative emotions. So just a lot of acknowledging, but yeah, it's it comes up a lot, I think. Um, that's why like whole cultures, I was reading a book the other day, and it was talking about like how sexualized our culture is, America, and um, how resistant and how, how resistant we are to exploring sexuality. In, in so many ways. So like we've lived off of shame for a really, really long time and it's a really powerful motivator for people. Um, but it's like, so that like secondary, it's like, oh, I am bad or I, or I did something bad. And it's almost like we can get comfortable in, in, in like live in those things and almost identify with those things, which, which I think brings me back to your, your word that you brought up, which is curiosity. I think what's helped me most in my therapy journey and in my personal development journey is rather than jumping straight to the judgment, um, trying to buffer in a little bit of curiosity into the mental conversation so that, you know, if I'm feeling upset at work, rather than just being like, I hate my job, wait, why do I dislike what's happening right now? Or uh, if someone's you know, rub me the wrong way. Wait, is it just that like people are the worst or or should I pause and say, uh, what is it about this interaction and maybe other interactions I've had? And I I love that you brought up that idea of curiosity because I think as we kind of get to the end of this conversation and we sort of, you know, we've touched on a lot of big ideas here. We've touched on value alignment. We've touched on sort of, uh, workplace and its impact and the relationship that we have with ourselves and with our workplace and with our bosses and so on. And I think even with the job search, there's a, there's a relationship that we build with that process as well. And a lot of times it's hyper negative and um, you know, Oh, my cover letter is not perfect. My portfolio is not ready. All these judgments start coming into play. And I think getting curious about all these things, is maybe for me, it was definitely a good starting point. And I'd be curious if there's anything that you might want to share with folks um, as they're maybe dealing with the ups and downs of the emotions of the job search and their career development. Is there anything that you would recommend that they think about or maybe look into in order to get some perspective outside of their own head? Yeah, that was so beautifully wrapped up. And, but what was coming to mind, like specifically with the the curiosity, which is like being mindful um, and versus being mindless. So when we get caught in that shame story or guilt trap where it's, we're just mindlessly being so cruel to ourselves. And if we're that cruel to ourselves, we'll accept it from someone else, such as an employer. So really getting to be kind to yourself, I think is the first start because then, you know, you're less likely to enter into a workplace that utilizes shame as a motivator if you are well acquainted with your own shame story. So I would, I would encourage people, and I have over the last, especially like during COVID, because some people were at the end of their ropes or like close to their limits um, with their job and then COVID happened. And it's like, I didn't have anything left to give. And now I'm just thankful to have a job. So it is getting curious and mindful about what aspects of your job do you like? So like for me, example, like 
I've chosen to be a psychotherapist based off of many opportunities and work environments I've had, which was a huge privilege, but I got to take parts and get curious about specific tasks in a job and then cultivate that into thankfully like psychotherapy existed and um, it's pretty structured and I can be really creative in every session. Um, it's vulnerable, it's authentic. It really is in line with a lot of my values. So for people who are kind of either unhappy in their current position or just like wanting a full change, which I've been there before too, it's just dissecting and being curious about um, what aspects do you like and what does that look like? I love it. And we'll wrap it there. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on all these topics. Um, there's so much more we can go into, so maybe we'll have to do a part two at some point. Um, but I really appreciate your time and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for stopping by this episode of the Career Therapy Podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. And if you're curious about what we do here at Career Therapy, head on over to www.careertherapy.com to see all of our coaching options, resources, and links to other things we got going on. If you would like to share your story on this podcast, something that you've gone through, a transition you've experienced in your career, whether it's getting a job after college or going through a layoff or getting back into the workforce after raising your family, we would love to hear from you. Head over to linkedin.com slash in slash Martin McGovern and shoot me a DM. Let me know what's going on and I really like to share your story with the world. What we're trying to do here is really normalize the emotional side of the job search because we all go through it. We all have tough times in our careers and sharing these stories really helps people feel less alone and feel more empowered to take their career back into their own hands and make something of it. So thank you again for stopping by. If you'd like to leave a like or a comment, subscribe or share, or leave us a review on iTunes, and I think maybe even Spotify, we'd really appreciate it. Best of luck to you in all of your career endeavors, and I'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.